Let's turn in our Bibles to Matthew 16. Matthew 16, and we'll start in verse 13, and we'll read to verse 23. 13 to 23. When Jesus came into the coasts of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And they said, Some say that you are John the Baptist, some Elijah, others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And he said unto them, But whom say ye that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say unto thee that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give unto you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he charged his disciples that they should tell no one that he was Jesus the Christ. And from that time forth began Jesus to show unto his disciples how that he must go unto Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and be raised again the third day. Then Peter took him and began to rebuke him, saying, Be it far from thee, Lord, this shall not be unto thee. But he turned and said unto Peter, Get thee behind me, Satan. You are an offense unto me, for you savor not the things that be of God, but the things that be of men. Let's pray once again. Lord, as we look at this rich, uh, deep, fathomless portion of Scripture, and we consider the words of your Son, we ask, Lord, that this morning you would give us the Holy Spirit to hear and understand, to notice things, and to realize, Lord, that you are speaking to us today, and that we can hear from you when we open your word. Help us to understand what we read. Help us to see Jesus more beautiful than we've ever seen him before. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'm not sure if you've noticed, you who speak English, but the word quest is in the word question. How many of you have noticed that? <laughs> Anybody? <laughs> First time for, uh, for me when I was thinking about it just the other day. It's amazing how we can miss simple things like that, but uh, the word question actually has its root in this Latin word quest. And uh, sometimes we just miss things because we, we need to just slow down and think about the words that we use, right? How many times have you used a word and then when you're asked for a definition, you don't really know how to explain, right? But you know what the word means, you just haven't slowed down enough to think about it. Or just noticing etymology like this, noticing how words are connected. Questioning. When someone asks questions, they're on a quest. They're on a quest to know. They want to do something, and to do it, they need to know about it, or they want to know something. And so what do you do? You ask questions. That's what you do if you want to know something, right? If you don't ask any questions, then you're probably a very ignorant person, right? <laughs> it's stupid to not ask questions. 
And uh, you probably haven't accomplished much in your life either if you don't ask very many questions. Have you noticed that God asks a lot of questions? Have you noticed? Right in the very beginning of the Bible, right? You see God ask a question. Adam, where are you? Right? (laughs) God asks a question. Or if we jump forward to the book of Job, we hear him ask Job, who is this that darkens my counsel? Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Huh? (laughs) Right? God asking questions. But why would the omniscient God ask questions? Is he on a quest to know? Is he on a quest to understand? There's another aspect of asking questions. You could say a person like God asks questions to help others understand. That's his quest. By asking questions, you help others understand. understand. And questions are actually one of the most effective ways. Asking questions is one of the most effective ways to teach. Because when you ask questions, because to know something you must question, but often people don't know what questions to ask, right? Have you ever been in that situation where somebody who's teaching raises a question you've never thought about and it opens up new understandings? Because you've never thought to ask that question, so you didn't know what was behind that question. And so therefore, the one who knows, the teacher who knows, knows how to ask questions to help others understand. Jesus was a question asker. Already in the book of Matthew, we've seen Jesus ask well over 40 questions, just in the book of Matthew alone. Let me remind you of just a few. If you love those who love you, what do you do different than the pagans? Jesus is asking a question, not because he's on a quest to understand, but he's asking a question for us to think about, right? And that's, that was probably a very profound question in those days. And even today, people think, yeah, really, I'm not any different than a pagan if I'm just loving those who love me. That's true. Jesus asked this question. If God feeds the birds, how much more will he feed you? Oh, you of little faith. Right? Aren't you much more valuable than they? Question mark. See, Jesus knows the answer to those questions, but he says, you need to think about this. You need to consider this. Have you considered this? Or one more. Why do you behold the beam in your brother's eye and you don't... uh, Why do you behold the moat, excuse me, the speck in your brother's eye, and you don't consider the beam in your own eye? Why is that? And go, oh yeah, there is a beam in my own eye. That's true. I'm playing the hypocrite if I judge another person for their sin. Jesus helps us understand with these questions. All of Jesus' questions are lessons. As I said, they're not for his learning, but for ours. His questions lead us on to new understandings. And this morning, Matthew chapter 16, verse 13, Jesus takes his disciples aside and asks them a leading question. Do you think that Jesus just wanted to know? Do you think that Jesus was just on a quest to understand? And his disciples knew better than he what the opinion of him was. Verse 13, when Jesus says, who do men say that I am? He's leading on to something. And in verse 15, but who do you say that I am? He's leading on to something. He's teaching them with questions. He wants them to understand. Jesus knows that his time is drawing 
to a close. At this point in the story, Jesus, we know, ministered for about three years, and his three years are now coming to an end. The book of Matthew can be divided into five main sections. Chapters 1 through 4 deals with the birth of Jesus and his preparation, the forerunner John the Baptist and Jesus' baptism and temptation. The second section of Matthew, which we are now leaving, chapter 4 to 16, which can be called his public ministry in Galilee, where Jesus is in Galilee healing people, teaching people publicly in the synagogues, getting into arguments with the Pharisees. His public ministry in Galilee is now coming to an end. The next section that we're now beginning in Matthew is his private instruction with his disciples. Chapter 16 to 18. We're going to notice Jesus is now taking his disciples aside and preparing them for what is about to happen to him. After this, we'll see in, verse, in chapter 19 to 25, Jesus goes into Judea and his public ministry be, there begins. Jesus rides in on a donkey into Jerusalem. Jesus teaches in Jerusalem, heals in Jerusalem, argues with the Pharisees in Jerusalem. And finally, 26 to 28 is his betrayal, death, betrayal, trial, death, and resurrection. And so here is a turning point. This could be said, you could say this is like a, a hump in Matthew. We've, Matthew is now turning a corner. The intensity has been rising. Jesus is hugely popular. Hostility with the leadership is rising. There's a lot of craziness going on, a lot of different opinions about Jesus. Things are now about to change as he goes to Jerusalem for his last time. And he takes his disciples aside, out of all the fray, to help them to think and to teach them. Like we've been saying about words, too busy to notice what we're even meaning. Jesus takes them aside to slow down and to think about him and to think about what they believe about him and what that means to believe in him. Jesus wants to show them the entire purpose of his coming. Because even at this point, you know that the disciples were not clear on why Jesus was even here, right? The disciples still didn't quite understand what it was all about. They were excited about the miracles. They were excited about the teaching. But we'll see what Peter thought when Jesus finally says, Here's what's about to happen, right? And we see what Peter and the disciples thought. Who do men say that I, and he calls himself by the title, or he refers to himself the way that he's been referring to himself, the Son of Man, am. R.T. France famous scholar who wrote a commentary on Matthew. It's considered to be one of the best on Matthew. He said, The Son of Man was understood to be Jesus' special way of referring to himself. But it is not a title with a ready-made content, as many Christians think. When Jesus said, The Son of Man, I'm the Son of Man, many Christians think he's alluding to the Old Testament and everyone should know what he's talking about. But it was more veiled than that. Because you see in the Gospels, people are arguing with him and saying, who is the Son of Man? They don't know what this title means. And R.T. France says, it's not a title with ready-made content. Thus, it leaves open the question, who is the Son of Man? So he asked them, who do people say that the Son of Man is? That I the Son of Man is? 
Now, Jesus has given them lots to consider. When he says, who do they think I am? We need to fill that with the content that Jesus has been filling it with over the last three years. Who do they think that I am? The one who preaches against the Pharisees. Who do they think I am? The one who preaches perfect righteousness. Who do they think this is? The one who expounds the law of Moses, confronts the Pharisees, and does all these miracles. Who do they think I am? Now the disciples give a nice answer, right? Because we know already in Matthew, there's people that think he's got a devil. They don't even mention that to Jesus. They kind of give Jesus the nice answer, right? <laughs> well, you know, some say you're John the Baptist. Some think you might be John the Baptist. Back from the dead. Herod thought that, right? Others think you are Elijah. Now, who is Elijah? The prophet of the Old Testament and the prophet that had been prophesied to come before the coming of the Messiah. So in a sense, they're saying, well, some think you're maybe the forerunner to the Messiah. And others maybe think you're Jeremiah. Jeremiah. Jeremiah was like you. Jeremiah preached against the leadership and preached the law got into a lot of trouble. Maybe you're Jeremiah reincarnated. Or maybe you're just one of the prophets. These are what people are thinking of you, Jesus. That answer is kind of disappointing, isn't it? And anticlimactic, one of the prophets. Sure, they preached against the law. Sure, they preached hard things. But a prophet was simply a, a voice for God, used by God temporarily often. And then they would go back to their private lives. Or we even find examples in the Old Testament of men who spoke for God and then got into sin and trouble with God and ultimately did not end well, right? Remember the man of God who prophesied and then got eaten by a lion? Remember that man? One of the prophets. Now there was no doubt that there was times when the people thought Jesus might have been the Christ, but they were not willing to say he was because the Pharisees would not say he was. The Pharisees never came out and said he was the Christ. And you can read the people's opinion in the Gospels. They say, do the Pharisees think he's the Christ or not? They want to know what the Pharisees think because the Pharisees are the guardians of orthodoxy. They're the ones who really should know. So they raise questions like in John chapter 7, verse 31. When the Messiah comes, will he do more miracles than this man? So they're not coming out and saying he's the Christ, but maybe they're entertaining that. However, the people felt it was much safer to say that maybe he was a forerunner to Christ or at least one of the prophets. And we know what the Pharisees' opinion of Jesus was. They wanted Jesus to die because they hated Jesus for what he preached, as we talked about last week. But they were trying to kill Jesus without upsetting the people, right? And they had the same problem with John the Baptist. They didn't want to just come out and say John the Baptist wasn't a prophet because the people thought he was. And most of the people thought Jesus was of God. But the Pharisees wanted to figure out a way, how can we kill Jesus without just coming out and saying he's not of God and upsetting the people? Maybe we can catch him in his words. Maybe we can convince the people, yeah, he's speaking for God, but look, he blasphemed. He deserves to die. He deserves to be eaten by a lion like that man of God. So there was a lot of opinion about Jesus. But the people did not think he was the Christ. 
And Jesus leads them to the second question. And look in verse 15, because this is a question now that each of us needs to ask ourselves. This is an important question. This is the ultimate question for you. Jesus asks, who do men think I am, so that he can zero in on the really important question. It doesn't matter what other people think. What do you think? Are you more concerned about what others think? Are you going along with the flow? The majority thinks I'm one of the prophets. What do you think? The majority think I'm just a really good teacher. What do you think? Some people hate my guts. But what do you say? Who do you say that I am? Brothers and sisters, for your own selves, it ultimately only matters what you say about Jesus, what you believe about Jesus. Right? I'm not saying we should be unconcerned about what others think. But ultimately for yourself, it's important that you understand who Jesus is, even if everyone else disagrees with you. And Peter's the first to speak up. Most people, most commentators believe he's speaking for the rest. But whatever the case is, he speaks up, probably without much hesitation. And he says, You, the Son of Man, the miracle worker, the preacher of righteousness, the guy that's getting in trouble with the Pharisees, the guy that everyone thinks is a prophet, I know who you are. You are the Messiah. You are the Christ. And he goes on, the son of the living God. That's a pretty lofty statement about who Jesus is, isn't it? And what makes this even more remarkable is when you consider Peter saying this in the light of his times. Because today we're like, yeah, cool, Peter, but we all know that, right? <laughs> if I were to ask you in this room, who's Jesus? You might say, he's the Christ, the Son, and the living God. I'd say, yeah. But we wouldn't say, blessed are you. <laughs> right? <laughs> I'm going to give you the keys of the kingdom. <clears throat> because we fail to see how remarkable it is. How few people believed he was the Christ. Think about it. Many, most people were against him. The Pharisees, the scribes, the leaders of Israel were opposed to him. So when Jesus says, you're the Christ, he's not just standing with the big group of Christians that believe he's the Christ. He's really stepping out on a limb against his own nation, against his own people, against his own leaders. And even the disciples weren't even that bright. And if you consider also, Jesus had not yet been glorified, right? Now, from our perspective, we say, he's the Christ. Of course, we know the story. He died on the cross for our sins, as the prophet said. He rose from the dead on the third day, right? We know this. So we're saying, oh, he's the Christ, the Son of the living God. You know, at this point, Peter doesn't even realize Jesus is going to die. Because when Jesus says, I'm going to be killed, he says, no. So Peter is saying, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, and Jesus is not glorified. Jesus has not been transfigured before him yet. Jesus is just this carpenter who stepped out of nowhere and started preaching and doing miracles. He says, you're the Christ. And even though everyone opposes you, everyone dis disagrees with you, they think you're maybe just a prophet at most, or at least. 
without any visible vindication of his royalty, without any knowledge of his death and resurrection, Jesus said, or Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And that's remarkable. And that's why Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon, son of John, because flesh and blood has not revealed this unto you, but my Father who's in heaven. Compared to today, Peter puts many people to shame by the fact that he believed in Christ at that point. And many people don't even believe in Christ today. Blessed are you. Jesus commends him in verse 17. Flesh and blood. That's a phrase common to the Jews. And it simply meant man. That's all it meant. It's not literally talking about flesh and blood. Just man. It was a synonym for man. J.B. Lightfoot says the Jewish writers used this form of speech infinite times. And by it, they opposed men to God. Whenever they spoke of flesh and blood, they always said flesh and blood, which means man as opposed to God. And that's exactly what Jesus is doing here, isn't it? He's saying God has revealed this unto you, not man. Man's ways are opposed to Christ. This is extremely important to see. The things of man are not the things of God, as Jesus says in verse 23. Man's ways are opposed to the message of Christ. What is man's ways? It's interesting because every religion in the world, except for Christianity, no matter how lofty and transcendent and religious and spiritual they may seem, they are the ways of man and the things of man. What are the things of men? Self-righteousness, right? That's the things of man. You want to know what the things of man are? Just go out and ask the majority of people in the world. Go to every different religion and every different culture and talk to them about religion. And you'll find out pretty quick what the things of man are. Self-righteousness. You are the one who is to save yourself. Put the effort in because you can do it. You are a good person. Pride. Optimism about man. Optimi optimism about man making himself right with God. These are the things of man and not the things of God. Puffed up. And you see this all throughout the Old Testament. God through the prophets complaining against the things of man. Men trust in the arm of the flesh. They say, look at our armies. Look what we can accomplish. They don't realize that God can just blow on their armies and knock them over like little green soldiers, right? <laughs> they don't think about God and his ways and his power. They just think about what they can do. In the book of Galatians, the Apostle Paul makes it very clear vehemently that the gospel that he preached, Galatians chapter 1, verse 11 and 12, he says, brothers and sisters, I want you to know that the gospel that I preach is not after man. It's not about the things of man. And I didn't learn it from men. I learned it from God in the revelation of Jesus Christ. <coughs> of course. God must open our eyes 
to his things. Because otherwise, who would believe it? The Apostle Paul, before he was a Christian, was eminently a man of flesh, right? He even says in Philippians, I could trust in myself more than anybody else, right? If anyone thinks they can trust in their flesh and what they can do, I could trust more. But now I count it all done. I've seen that the ways of man are opposed to the ways of God. I've seen that the ways of man, that man is nothing. Flesh and blood doesn't profit. Who you are, what you've done, all your accomplishments, all your good deeds. Are you trusting in those things? But when he had the revelation from the Father of Christ, he said, I count everything that I once thought gain as done. Now, at this point, we're confronted with a paradox, a problem. Now imagine reading this for the very first time. You have no knowledge of what happens next. You're reading Matthew for the first time. You've never read the Bible. You don't know anything about the story. And you're like, wow, Peter gets really commended here. This is really amazing. Good job, Peter. Wow. Blessed is Peter. And you're reading on. And imagine the shock of reading verse now 23. Wait, Satan? And the shocking thing is, the one who is now commended that God the Father revealed it to him and not man, in verse 23, Jesus says, Get you behind me, Satan, for you are an offense to me, for you do not savor the things that be of God, but the things that be of men. Huh? And you might, and here's the problem, here's the question, here's the paradox. If Peter's savoring the things of men and not the things of God, then what is the true value of his confession? Right? How much does he really understand? When he says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, well, in a couple of verses we realize he doesn't really know much about that. Right? Why does Jesus commend him then? How can Peter get rebuked so soon? And if he didn't understand the death of Christ, how can he be commended for believing in Christ? See the problem or the question? So what did the Father reveal to him? Right? And here's my stab at it. Here's what I think. That Peter, up to this point, had heard Jesus preaching on the Sermon on the Mount, had heard Jesus tussling with the Pharisees, had seen the miracles of Jesus, but so had a whole lot of other people seen the miracles of Jesus, and yet still turned away from Jesus. But Peter had taken it in up to that point, and his attitude at this point, I think is perhaps best shown in the Gospel of John, when Jesus is saying, you need to eat my flesh and drink my blood or else you have no life in you, right? And Jesus is talking about eating him. And nobody understands, including, including the disciples. Even the disciples don't get it. Because it's not an explicit statement, I'm going to Jerusalem to die. He's saying, you've got to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And they're like, what is this? 
And it says at that point, lots of disciples left Jesus. Lots of disciples walked away. But Peter says this, because Jesus comes to the disciples and says, are you guys going to leave too? Are you out of here? Have I offended you? You don't get it, do you? And Peter answers by saying this, Lord, to whom shall we go? We know that you have the words of eternal life. Right? And we believe that you are the Christ who's been sent from God. And so I think here we see Peter is very confused. And Peter doesn't understand all these things. But it does not mean that his confession is therefore insignificant. Though it is indeed insufficient. But Peter had seen Jesus saying these wacky things about his flesh and blood. And Jesus had heard or Peter had heard Jesus contradict the Pharisees and say the Pharisees are on their way to hell and you need to be perfectly righteous to get to heaven. And Peter's hearing this and he doesn't understand exactly how he's going to be perfectly righteous, but he believes you've got to be perfectly righteous to get to heaven. It's got something to do with the flesh and blood of Jesus. I don't quite understand, but I do know that he's the Christ, he's from God, and he's speaking the words of eternal life. And I can't leave. And this is the value of his confession. He believed in Jesus, though we had more to learn, though we didn't understand the whole story. He was a man who believed Jesus was the Christ and was listening to him, no matter how difficult the teaching was. And so we're not to take from this passage, well, look, Peter didn't understand the cross, Peter didn't understand the gospel, but he still commended, which means that a person can believe in Jesus as the Christ and not understand the gospel and not understand the cross and still be okay. We're not to take that away from this. We need to understand the time. According to verse 21, Jesus had not yet opened his mouth about his death. Jesus has not yet even said he was going to die. So you have to understand at that time, Peter didn't know. But the difference is this. The death of Christ and the preaching of the gospel has been fully disclosed now. And for a person to say, I believe in Jesus Christ as the Messiah, the Son of God, and to not believe in the gospel, and to not believe in the death of Christ, and to not put their trust in him, does not mean they get commended. Because they really don't believe in Christ. Because they don't listen to what he says. Because what he says is too hard. Right? I believe he's the Christ, but all that teaching about his death and eating it and being saved by grace and the preaching of the apostles, uh uh-uh. But I believe he's the Christ. You don't. You don't understand what the Christ means. Well, Peter didn't. True. But he was listening. And Jesus hadn't fully disclosed the cross. But he was listening. He knew Jesus had the words of eternal life. In verse 18 and 19, Jesus turns to Peter, the man who is listening, the man who believes he's the Christ in this remarkable setting, in this remarkable time. And Jesus prophesies over Peter in verse 18 and 19. This is prophetic. This is what Jesus will do, right? 
I will build my church. I will give you the keys of the kingdom. I don't think Peter was quite yet aware of what that meant, and he wasn't ready for that at that time. But Jesus speaks prophetically to Peter. And it's really quite a beautiful thing, because the original question was, who do you think I am? Who do men say that I am? And they said, well, men say you're this. Who do you say that I am? I believe you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And now Jesus turns to Peter and says, okay, now I'm going to tell you who you are. It's a beautiful thing. Isn't that amazing? Jesus is interested in Peter. And he says, now I, the Lord Christ, will tell you exactly who you are. And I think there's a profound lesson here. Brothers and sisters, to find Jesus in truth is to find yourself. What I mean by that is this. You don't really know who you are until you know who Christ is, right? Because before you really know Christ, you don't really know God. And if you don't know God, you don't know who you are. Atheists don't know who they are, right? They think, I'm, I'm an evolved monkey, basically, right? That's not who you are. That's not who anyone is, any person. They don't know. Muslims don't know who they are. Anyone who doesn't know who Christ is does not truly know who they are. Created by God, valuable to Him, and loved greatly. Welcomed to the throne. Welcomed to the feast. Not just some creation that God wants nothing to do with. Invited into God's glorious drama and plan. Each of us has a place in God's world. That place is with Christ. That's what you were created for. To know God. That's who you are meant to be. And when Jesus saw Simon for the first time, he called him Peter, didn't he? Very first time he met, very first time he met Simon, he said, your name is Peter. I'm sure Peter at that time was like, I just met this guy. Why is he telling me what my name is? <laughs> didn't Nathaniel, te Nathaniel tell you? Didn't Andrew tell you? <laughs> Jesus spoke prophetically because he knew who Simon was. He knew what God had created Simon to be, right? God had made Simon for this, right? To be an apostle. To be a stone. Jesus foreknew, chose him to be a stone. I believe God has plans for us as well. Things that for each of us that God has made us for. And until you know God in Christ, you'll never know who you are and what you're made for. And again, here, now he says... You're coming into your, your divine role that, I've, that God has created you for. Peter, you are Peter, stone. And I tell you that upon this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Of course, this is a hugely controversial verse, right? Because uh, for years and years and years, it's been taught that Peter is the rock on which the church of Christ is built. It's been interpreted by the Roman Catholic Church to mean that Peter was the very first pope or the head of the church. But this is what Jesus is saying here. 
And that the church must necessarily be built upon this hierarchy where there's a pope. So God can speak to his people through that pope. Sounds familiar. I always need some mediator besides God himself and Jesus. Brothers and sisters, I wholeheartedly agree and stand with our fellow Protestant interpreters who say that Jesus is not here making a statement about Peter being the foundation upon which the church is built, right? That when he says, you are Peter, he means you are a stone. And on this rock, I will build stones. I will put stones on this rock, right? When you build a church or a building, you've got to have a foundation, and then you take stones and you build, right? You build. That's what you do. And he's saying, Peter, you're a stone. One of the first stones. And I put it on this rock, and I'm building my gathering, my church. One of the things that Messiah is believed to do by the Jews and believed to do by us Christians is that when the Messiah comes, he'll rebuild or he'll build again the temple of God. And the Apostle Paul talks about this in Ephesians, that God is building a spiritual temple with his people. We're the resources, we're the building blocks that he's building a spiritual temple with. A spiritual temple, not a physical building, whereby God can live and dwell among us and a spiritual temple that can praise him and worship him, which is the purpose of the church. The purpose of the church is to be a place for God to dwell a people who know God and who God lives among and who who worship God and give God the sacrifices of praise and thanksgiving. Who else can do that but the church? Who else knows God but the church? Who else can be close to God but the church? And who else can praise him for who he is and be thankful but the people of God? So brothers and sisters, to suggest that Peter is the rock on which the church is built is so out of keeping with the entire Bible, it's absurd on its face. The rock is Jesus. The rock is the truth of who Jesus is. The rock is the revelation that God gives that Jesus, the one who preaches righteousness and preaches his flesh and blood must be consumed in order to be eaten, the one who will soon to preach his death as the and faith in his death as the only way of righteousness is the rock on which this church is built. And this thought so struck Peter that he writes about it in 1 Peter. And turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 2. I'd like you to see Peter's own words on this very thought. This incident was so significant in his life that I don't think it ever left him. And as we read this passage, I want you to notice the parallels and the themes that, are, that connect this passage with Matthew. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 2. Because now Peter's addressing fellow Christians and fellow believers. And notice the parallels. As newborn babes, desire the sincere milk of the word that you may grow thereby. If so be, you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. To whom coming as unto a living stone, disallowed indeed of men, but chosen of God. Notice the contrast again between men and God here. Men have rejected Christ. 
Christ doesn't have a place in men's thoughts. But God has chosen him, and God has declared he is precious. In verse 5, you also, I think here Peter is saying, I'm not the only stone, okay? I'm just an example. When Jesus called me a stone, I was an example. Because you also are living stones. You are built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. Wherefore also it is contained in the scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect and precious, which is Jesus. He that believes on him, which is what Peter did, shall not be confounded. Unto you therefore which believe, he is precious. But unto those who are disobedient and who don't believe, Christ the stone, which the builders disallowed, the same is made the head of the corner, a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense, even to those who stumble at the word, being disobedient, whereunto they also are appointed. So here, Peter's view is mature. Peter now understands the gospel. He understands the death of Christ. In Matthew 16, he didn't know Jesus would be killed. But in 1 Peter, he says, the stone that the builders rejected has become the chief stone, the head of the corner, by which the rest of the church is built upon. What everyone else rejected, Peter said, Jesus is precious. Before he had understanding, he said he's precious. And today, brothers and sisters, what do you say about Jesus? Now men reject him. They rejected him and they reject him today. And they erect in his place false Jesuses. But do you believe that the true Jesus of the Bible the preacher of true and perfect righteousness, the one who died on the cross for your sins and says, believe in me and you'll be saved, is precious. The one that the world rejects, do you believe? Well, I feel like I'm running out of time and there's so much more to say about this passage. I guess we'll look lastly at verse 20 in closing. And perhaps next week we'll look at the keys of the kingdom. Jesus charged his disciples that they should tell no one that he was Jesus the Christ. Why? I'm sure the disciples were wondering why. You know? And I think the thing that we can take away from this is that Jesus does not want people to believe that he's the Christ without understanding and accepting that he speaks the truth. You see, it's not enough just to believe that Jesus is one of the prophets. He is the Christ. He's not just one of the prophets. He's not just someone who speaks for God. Jesus is the Christ, as Peter rightly said. But as we see in this passage, it also isn't enough to simply believe that Jesus is the Christ without understanding his death. Otherwise, we get the rebuke, get behind me, Satan. You don't know the things of God. You don't savor the things of God, but the things that be of man. Peter had to learn this. But The preaching of Jesus as the Christ was not yet ready. The apostles did not yet understand 
what was truly involved in being the Christ, that Christ came to die for our sins and be the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. It was only after Jesus died and rose from the dead, instructed his apostles, and they were filled with the Spirit and understood the prophets and the gospel. And he said, now go into all the world and preach the gospel of Christ. So we see that the ultimate question is not simply that is Jesus the Christ or not? But who exactly is Jesus and what exactly does it mean to be the Christ? That is the ultimate question. Do you believe that he, the Son of Man, and of course today we know the one who died and rose and offers you the grace of God. Is he the Christ? Who do you say that he is? Let's pray. Father in heaven, your ways are not our ways. Your ways are higher than man's ways. Your thoughts are higher than man's thoughts. Help us to see the folly of man and the thoughts of man and the desires of man. Help us to be listeners like Peter was. Help us to be those who hear your word, who have ears to hear and submit to it, and not those who walk away because we don't like it. And Lord, thank you for disclosing to us the gospel in its fullness, and thank you for showing us your love for us in the cross of Christ and the death of Christ. Thank you for the understanding that you've given. Lord, I pray that if anyone is here who thinks they believe in Christ, but they don't truly believe because they don't truly listen and understand the gospel. May you show them your amazing love for them. Cause us all here to understand that it's not by our own works that we're right with you, but it's by trusting in the righteousness that comes through your Son. Thank you for this remarkable passage, Lord, and thank you for the plans that you have in each of our lives. May we slow down and think about the words you've said to us and understand the amazing plans that you have for each one of us. We pray this in your name and we pray that you would be glorified in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.